Did you go? Did, did you even know it was New York Fashion Week this week? <laughs> you knew about that, right? You know, it's pretty pathetic if you have to find out from your rabbi that it's New York Fashion Week. <laughs> you have to get a life. The Torah portion of the week, Titzavei, is about fashion too. An entire chapter, 43 verses, is devoted to the clothes of the high priest. And what garments? It's not your standard Walmart, Walmart variety. What is described in the 28th chapter in the book of Exodus is high fashion. Gorgeous gimps, hair-raising headwear, luscious laces, tantalizing tatty, plucky pleats, seamless seams, dyes to die for, wonderful weaves, wefts, and warps. The Bible ordains that only the most talented of the ancient fashion artisans work on Aaron's clothes. People who were skilled not only in design, but in sourcing. After all, where in the wilderness could you locate carnelian chrysolite, which is what God ordained be put in the breastplate of the high priest? You had to locate middlemen from the mines of Midian or the quarries of Cush or notice a Nabataean traveling to the great trading city of Petra. And by the way, our next trip to Israel on March 2017 will likely include an option to spend a day in Petra. Mark your calendar now. God instructs Moses that these vestments should be made by people who are chachmei lev, asher melitiv ruach chokhmah, master fashion designers, so talented that it seems that they are filled with a divine spirit. The clothes of Aaron were to contain gold and so many vibrant colors that even Donna Karen would be driven to ecstasy. Pure blue, purples, scarlet, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen, precious stones, silver, emeralds, turquoise, sapphires, lapis lazuli whatever that is. It's a precious gem. Colors and genius and creativity. Aaron fully decked in the highest fashion of antiquity. It must have been magnificent. Perhaps even a bit wasted on someone as dour and solemn and serious as we imagine the high priest to have been. He had elaborate sashes and fine linens of the softest animal hairs, there were designer belts, the embroidered belt of the ephod, not only just any old belt from the sample sale variety, the Bible uses the term cheshev, thoughtful, genius design. The ancient equivalent of I don't know, Bottega Veneta belts for men. 
and none of that factory outlet shopping. This was all the highest quality, the most expensive components, and the most flawless, mistake-free design. If there was a flaw in the garment, you had to do it all over again. You couldn't just get it at a discount. It's all deeply surprising because the Bible rarely pauses to give this kind of detail for anything, let alone clothes. We don't know what Moses wore. We don't know what Joshua wore. We assume they were plain old desert clothes. The Bible rarely mentions the physical attributes of even its most important heroes. We don't know what Moses looked like. We don't know what Abraham looked like. We know that Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Esther were beautiful, but we don't know what physical attributes made them beautiful. We don't know how tall they were. We don't know what was the color of their hair. The Bible is less interested in physical form. It's much more interested in content, that which lay under the physical form. The one Israelite who was described as tall was King Saul. The Bible describes his height because it is important for us to know that the first king of Israel stood head and shoulder above all of the other Israelites. He looked like a king. His appearance was regal. He was described as the most handsome of the Israelites. No one, says the Bible, was more handsome than he was. But remember, King Saul was a failure. His line ended with him and replaced by the line of David. So the point of pointing out Saul's beauty and height seems to be that this outward sign of stature is not actually what counts, even for the king. What counts is what is in the inside. Saul was a towering man of strength. The person who replaced him, David, was a shorter poet. But it was David who slew the giant Goliath. And it was David who established the line of kings that would last for a thousand years. The messianic era would be ushered in by a descendant of King David. And it seems to me that this is the point of the elaborate description of the close of the high priest. Maimonides writes that the multitude does not estimate human beings by their true form, but by the beauty of their garments. And the temple was to be held in great reverence. In other words, people are impressed by the exterior, the form, more than the content. And since it was imperative to revere God, the human mechanism to comprehend God, the temple and the temple's priests, had to be covered in beauty and glory, not for the priest's sake, but for the masses' sake. 
Maimonides argued that if the priests were decked in magnificence, the people could better grasp and revere the magnificence of God. We recognize this tendency as well. If the judge is robed in solemnity, we better appreciate justice. If the university president is mortar-boarded, by the way, that's not some punishment. That's the stiff hats that they wear at commencement. If the university president is mortar-boarded, we can better appreciate education. If the crowd at a basketball game all wears the same t-shirts, we can better appreciate group solidarity. The Torah focuses on something we all know but often prefer to ignore. Human beings are impressed by form, by outer beauty. When we evaluate people, how they look, what clothes they are wearing, how they are put together makes a difference to us. Their form impresses us for good and for bad. As the purveyor of all worthy statements, Mark Twain once wrote, a policeman in plain clothes is a man. In his uniform, he is 10. Clothes and title are the most potent thing, the most formidable influence in the earth. They move the human race to willing and spontaneous respect for the judge, the general, the admirable, the idiot duke, the sultan, the king, the emperor. Clothes make the man. Naked people have little influence on society. <laughs> Do you ever marvel at the sight of former dictators stripped of their uniforms? Saddam Hussein crawling out of a hole in the ground? Muammar Gaddafi hiding in a drainage pipe? Adolf Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem? How pathetic and weak they look. What in the world were we so afraid of? They seem so diminished in comparison to their image and uniform. They're so stripped of their power and prestige. That's the point of the elaborate description of the magnificent uniform of the high priest. It is the opposite of what it first seems. This high fashion was intended to build reverence not for the priests as individuals. After all, strip them of their clothes, and what is left is a bunch of old geezers with sagging bits. Rather, the magnificence of the apparel was intended to build reverence for the institution that the priests represented, the organized communal worship of God, what we would call today organized religion. There's nothing wrong with high fashion. 
To the contrary, there is much right and awesome about it. Fashion represents genius, creativity, ingenuity, and most important of all, the human striving for beauty. It is one of the distinctive characteristics of being human, the yearning for beauty. No other creature on earth values beauty for beauty's sake. For us, mere vegetable dyes and animal hair can become hoot couture. Natural oil and ground pigment can become Mona Lisa. Steel wires can become the Moonlight Sonata. Rocks can become David. As Michelangelo said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. Beauty is what makes life worth living for human beings. We spend our lives among the ordinary stuff and try to set the angel free. Judaism is in favor of beauty. Our tradition emphasized that we are to enjoy life to the fullest. The problem is not that we value beauty. The problem is that we value beauty that is only skin deep. We value the ex exterior at the expense of the interior. We pay little heed to that which is within. All this exterior form dazzles us. We mistake it for the essence. The Hebrew word for clothing is beged. The word beged is also the Hebrew word for betrayal. Sure enough, the biblical passages mentioning clothes often describe them as instruments of betrayal. Adam and Eve were clothed in the Garden of Eden after they betrayed God. Jacob wore Esau's clothes, betraying Esau by deceiving their father, Isaac. Joseph's brothers stained his multicolored coat with animal blood to betray Joseph by deceiving their father, Jacob. Later, when the brothers appear before Joseph, if you remember, he was dressed as an Egyptian lord, hiding from his brothers his true identity. Exterior beauty is wonderful, as long as it doesn't betray who we really are and mask our true selves. As Hamlet tells his mother, seems, madam, Nay, it is, I know not seems. Tis not alone my ink and cloak, good mother, but I have that within which passeth show, these but trappings and the suits of woe. What we are under our ink and cloaks is who we really are. What is within, that which passes show is our essence. All the rest are mere trappings under suits of woe. Saul's failed reign prompts Samuel to search for a new king. God tells him to go to the house of Jesse, and there, among Jesse's sons, he will find the next king of Israel. And the Bible describes the scene. When Samuel arrived, he saw Eliav, 
son of Jesse. He thought, surely God's anointed stands here. But God said to Samuel, pay no heed to Eliav's impressive appearance. For man cannot see like God. A man sees only what is visible, but God sees into the heart. What a magnificent verse. Alta bet el mar ehu. Do not look to outer beauty. Look to the heart. And there you will find the heart of a king.